Good morning, church. Happy Easter to you. And it is an incredible day. We get to celebrate the centerpiece of the Christian faith that our Lord Jesus was raised today, and we had a potluck. I mean, that's a holy day. That is a wonderful day. I've often said that's the next sacrament, right? You have baptism, Lord's Supper, and the potluck. I think Jesus is present in all of these. Just to let you know. Now, I do appreciate all the people that put that together. I do love this church. I love being a part of this church, a member of this congregation. If you're just visiting with us today, I promise you, I say this often, we're a mess, and that's okay. <laughs> we're not perfect, so if you're looking for the perfect church, keep looking, and you'll look for a long time. But if you're looking for a place where it's okay to be broken, it's okay to be on the journey with our God, and people that love each other deeply, then this is a wonderful place, and you are welcome here. Uh, when we're finished, we do have a welcome center, and encourage you to go out there, grab some coffee, grab some drinks, and just hang out and get to know us a little bit. Um, I, I do think about this today. Obviously, we celebrate the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus every week. Uh, that is a reality. We are so grateful that our God said, I, I want to so intimately connect with my world that I'm going to send my son to give his life and then come to life again for us. We do that every week. But there is something special that about this day, about 2,000 years ago, it actually happened. And this is the centerpiece, as Stephen said, of the Christian faith. This is the central aspect of our faith, that Jesus died, but he did not stay dead. As is true with all of the great religions of the world, certainly is true with Christianity, one of the ways that this has been passed down is through this interesting word, testimony. Have you heard this before? From the very beginning, people testified to the experience of the resurrected Christ. One of the places you see this is in a writing of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, and he says, I, I saw him. But he said Jesus died, he came back, he appeared to his inner circle, but then he appeared to more than 500 people, and then this really powerful language, he said, most of whom are still living. You get the point that he was trying to make? If you're struggling with this, Paul said, go, go interview him, go ask him. More than 500 people saw a dead man come to life. And that was the beginning of testimony after testimony. One of the things that's powerful is those testimonies over the last 2,000 years have not stopped. Because I suspect if you talk to anybody who has walked with Jesus for any length of time, they will tell you, I have experienced Jesus alive in ways that has made my life come alive. And some people have more spectacular experiences of those than others. I have a friend of mine who grew up, grew up in, the, in the Far East, and she grew up in a place where it was illegal to own a Bible. It was illegal to name Jesus as Lord and do you know how Jesus reached her? Do you know this is happening all over the world? Have you heard this? Jesus reached her in her dreams. She has this powerful testimony of how Jesus showed up and set things in motion in an experience in a dream that then she saw played out among Jesus' people when she got here in America. And now she lives to tell the story of the resurrected Christ. We are a community that is based on testimonial experiential reality. The resurrection isn't just something we talk about and think about. It is an experienced reality. And the story I want to look at today is the testimony of someone who started out not believing in what this day is all about. In fact, he very intensely, intensely opposed it. 
His name at the beginning of this experience was Saul, but he was so radically changed by his encounter of the resurrected Christ. His name and his life was changed. We know him as Paul. And he is responsible through the Holy Spirit of the vast majority of the books of our New Testament. Not words. Luke has that claim, but the books of the New Testament. I want to read this. If you have your Bibles or your devices, we're going to look at a piece of his testimony. In the book of Acts, he will give his testimony again and again and again. And this is just a piece of it. As he's standing before a king named Agrippa, maybe you've heard of his father, Herod, who was eaten by worms in, earlier in the story. And Paul is giving his testimony. <clears throat> We're really going to end up focusing on one word in this testimony, but let's hear uh, the context of it. Acts 26, we'll start in verse 9, and he has just said, why do you think it's astounding that I'm making a claim of the resurrection of the dead? In verse 9, he said, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time, I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished. And I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of those journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. And about noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand, and stand on your feet. I've appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness to what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I want to begin, fittingly for what we've been talking about the last several weeks, I want to begin with one of my favorite words in the English language. Finished. <laughs> Not a great word. Finished. Now, I've done a lot of school in my life, most of you know. I've spent Many, many years of my life, either directly or indirectly doing ministry with college students, when you say that word, finished, there's one period of time that often comes to their mind. It's this oppressive time called exam week. <laughs> Been through many, many versions of that. I, I remember it would happen to me all the time. Some of you, I know, some of you, I'm looking at some of you, you plan things way out in advance. You take care of everything. For me, I, I don't quite do that. And so exam weeks were brutal for me. Some of you enjoyed it because you just all, everything was done. I had to read volumes of material and memorize things and write projects. I, I used to wake up a day or two later, and I would wake up in a panic thinking, I've got to study something or I've got to get to test. And then I remembered that word. Ah, finished. <laughs> Actually, I had a student that said one time, I would almost give my entire college experience 
for the feeling of just being finished with exams. Now, that's a little bit of an overstatement. But most of us have that feeling at some point in our lives or another. We might have some massive project that's kind of weighing over us and feels so great to be able to email it in, just, oh, finished. Or maybe you think about this last year, around this time, maybe just a couple weeks later, we began like the longest summer in human existence. <laughs> and, and, you know, that brutal heat that comes and it's like, oh, and then that finally it's just finished, right? I've got a lot of friends who are accountants. <laughs> so April 15th is a beautiful day when they can say, oh, I'm, I'm finished, right? And we think of some of those, but you know, here's the reality. There's deeper seasons of our lives where we long to be able to say that word. It may be a season of suffering for you or someone that you love. It may be a season of struggle. It may be a season of doubt. It may be a season of depression. And in some of those, we never completely get through it. But, but there is something that happens. Eventually, it turns in such a way we long to be able to say that word. Oh, my goodness, I'm finished. We're thinking about that in this time because I, I think about the one that we worship on this day. And one of the beautiful things, one of the incredible things about Easter and about this day is we, we serve a Lord who was a master at finishing. He was great at finishing. Uh, we, we think about this on, on resurrection morning. He comes out of that tomb and there's the sense in which he is finished from what he struggled with, right? Or, or we think about a, a passage here um, in John 19 where he says, ah, it is finished, right? You think about all of that. Here, here's, here's the picture I want to give you, though, as we lead into this story. I, I remember a season of my life, me and several friends of mine, we longed for a symbol of being finished, right? Uh, we wanted a medal around our neck that said we were finished. What? So what do we decide to do? We decide to sign up for the Oklahoma City Marathon. <laughs> it's a great race, by the way. It's incredible because it's done, it's beautifully done. It's done in honor of the people who, who died in a tragedy some years ago. And so as you run the race, you see the names of the people that we're running in honor for. It's really powerful. But here's the thing. That's a really hard thing to do. 26.2 miles. Never run that far in my life and like, I don't know if we can do this. And it was funny because we started as a kind of a bonding experience and a discipleship thing with our campus ministry and our church. And 32 people signed up at the beginning. By the end, there was eight of us <laughs> that tried it at least. And it was several months before, and our friend Jim, who had run seven marathons before, came to talk to us and give us a little bit of information and a little bit of inspiration. The information he gave was really important. He said something I know you've heard of before, but man, it's a true reality if you've experienced anything like this. He said, I want you to know there is a thing called the wall. You do actually hit the wall. He said somewhere around 20 miles or so, yeah, give or take a couple of miles, you'll get to this place where everything in you wants to quit. And he said something then that was so important for us as we've tried to prepare for this thing, but I think it's true about bigger things too. He said, the entire marathon is all about the last six miles. It's all about the last six miles. And for some people, they hit a physical wall, like literally your body locks up and you, you can't physically move anymore. Others, it's mental. Mine was a mental thing. I remember it was 22 miles into the race. 
And I literally kind of started losing my mind a little bit. I, I went to a water stop. I was drinking some water. And, and this is what hit me. I'm not making this up. The, these words came into my head. First of all, the three guys I run, there were several with we trained, but there were three guys that I ran with. All of them were students. And this popped in my head. They're 15 years younger than you, and you are going to die. That's what came in my head. I promise. <laughs> I tried to work through it. tried to work through it. And Jim gave us some some motivation when he spoke to us and he said, here's the, here's the reality. I want you to know, here's a motivator for you. You can gut through the wall. You can work through the wall if you train for it because here's what I want you to see. He said, did you know less than 1% of the nation has actually finished a marathon? A lot of people started it. Less than 1% have actually finished it. Be in that 1%. And the other thing he said was really powerful. He said, I learned more about myself and I learned more about my faith by actually training for and running a marathon. And I thought about this and I'm like, this is true about our faith. There is something about Worshiping the resurrected Christ is a 1% thing. I'm not talking about an exclusive club. There are billions of followers of Jesus, and it's open to everybody. But there is something unique about the invitation to follow the resurrected Christ. There's something unique about the experience and the wonder of being a follower of Jesus. And again, as I said before, that's what I love about Jesus. He's a finisher. He's a phenomenal finisher. You put the words up of that text if you would, right? When we think of Easter morning, it's finished. But this is what he said when he's on the cross. He looks up to heaven and he cries out, it is finished. And we think about that moment and all the things that led up to it and all of God's plan for the redemption of a broken world and not just individual hearts. And Jesus cried out, it is finished. We celebrate Jesus being a finisher. I don't know about you. I'm a horrible finisher. I'm a great starter. I'm a horrible finisher. I am a marvelous beginner of books. I read, I be, I read the beginning of a lot of books. <laughs> don't get to the end of them. I was talking to Melanie earlier this week. I was just thinking about my garage. You know, we've lived, I can't tell you how many different houses that we've either rented or bought that we've lived in in the time that we've been married and our kids have grown up. Did you know, I just realized this week as I was thinking about this, I have never finished organizing any garage I've ever had. I, I don't know if you have this experience. Never done it. I've started it a lot. Never finished it. What I love about Jesus is he is a finisher. And I want us to think about this for a moment and this, the significance of Easter and not just that it happened, that a man who was dead came to life, but what does that mean for us? I want to think about very one small thing by the way, we're going to keep unpacking this. In subsequent weeks, we're going, to, we're going to have a series we call So What? If he's alive, what's the big deal? How does that impact our lives? We'll talk about those in subsequent weeks. But I just want to think about uh, the meaning and significance of Easter for us right now. But let's begin this way. I want you to think about uh, the significance of what happened um, at the beginning of what we call Easter Sunday. It all goes back to the culmination of the ancient word for this is the passion. The passion of the Christ, right? The passion, that word is actually just the transliteration of a Greek word that means agony or suffering, a, a time of suffering for a greater purpose. And one of the things that we celebrate when we think about everything that's happened this past week, we talk about the passion of the Christ. There are movies about this. But if you're like me, most of what I tend to think about when I think about the passion is usually kind of restricted to a few days. We talk about Passion Week. And really, if we're honest, one day. 
And we think about the passion being that time when Jesus goes from his arrest until his death and the great suffering of Jesus. But I want to begin our reflection on this Easter morning by thinking about this. Did you know that the passion of the Christ, that the suffering and the agony of Jesus started long before the whips ever hit his back? The suffering of Jesus started long before the nails pierced his brow, long before the nails pierced his hands and his feet. I'll just give you a few examples of this. You can come up with your own, but I want to think about how this goes throughout his life and ministry. I want to start, give you three images of the Passion of the Christ that go before Passion Week. The first one starts in Passion Week. It is the Garden of Gethsemane. And we think about this moment where Jesus goes and has it a one-on-one time with God, he invites some of his closest followers. They fall asleep. They can't even hang with him. And Jesus is praying so intensely, it says, sweat like drops of blood are coming off of him because he does not want to go to the place of death. And it's not just death. We know this. There's this sense of distance and separation between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit that had never happened in all of eternity that was going to happen in that moment. And he said, God, Father, if there's any other way, I don't want to do it. But he submits to the will of the Father. Now, here's the thing. You say, well, this is Passion Week. And I think about that moment where Jesus surrenders his individual will to the larger will of God. That moment and that suffering and that temptation happened there, but it didn't start there, did it? We talked about this, one of the first classes I ever taught. Did you know this temptation began all the way back at the beginning of Jesus' ministry? He is baptized Spirit of God descends on him. The Father speaks a word of blessing. This is my son. Listen to him. And the very first thing that happens is Jesus, led by the Spirit, goes into the wilderness. And one of the temptations he is given by the devil is to bow down and worship the devil. And all the kingdoms of the world, it says, will be his. In other words, the temptation for the very beginning of Jesus' ministry was to become king without the cross. The garden was not the first time he struggled with that temptation. It was the last before he gave his life. He had been dealing with it his entire life. He's wrestled with that temptation. Have you ever had a season of your life or a time in your life where you've struggled with a deeper sense of purpose and you wanted to sell out to what was shallow or easy and take the easy road? Jesus did too. Do You see, the passion of the Christ started long before the whips hit his back. Second example, and it may sound funny, but I mean this. The second example of the suffering of Jesus are these guys, the disciples. Oh, yes, they're his friends, and they're great, and they're wonderful companions. Here's the reality. You know this, don't you? Jesus did an extraordinary thing by opening up his heart and his life and let people in. Do you know the fastest way to get hurt is to let someone close to your heart? Now, hopefully, and usually, It is worth it. And life, in fact, doesn't work without that. And some people bottle themselves up because of this. But the reality is, you know this as well as I do, the people who will hurt you most in your life are the ones that are closest to your heart. And that was true for Jesus too. Yes, they were his friends, but these friends also misunderstood him. These friends pushed against him from time to time. And just right before the moments that we're looking at this week, In the darkest moment of his life, when Jesus needed them the most, they all abandoned him. Have you ever been let down by someone that you let into your heart? Jesus did too. And the passion of the Christ started long before those thorns ever got on his brow. 
Uh, the last one, again, there are others. The last one, I think, of these guys, the Pharisees and the religious leaders who were not friends that just kind of let him down in a difficult moment. These were people who were intentionally opposing and attacking Jesus. The scowls there are real. They opposed him at every turn. Have you ever had somebody in your life that was actually against you? Someone that stood up for something and pushed something and, 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 and tried to go against everything that you hold most sacred and dear. Have you had someone like that? Jesus did too. And that's one of the reasons why Jesus has suffered in all of these ways. It's one of the reasons why I'm just crying out by the time we get to Easter Sunday for him just to be finished. Can he get done with this? Can we work through all of these things? And then I come to this particular story. We come to the story of Paul's testimony. And what, what I want to say uh, about this particular passage Here's a little principle. We talked about this before, but I want you to think about this. How one word can change everything. Just think about this. One word can change everything in your life, in a situation that's going on. Have, have you, ever, you ever been pulled by a cop before? <laughs> I, I, always, I always tell my kids as they're learning how to drive, here's the thing. Don't try to give them an excuse. <laughs> Please just don't do that, right? You're speeding, just own it, right? Uh, one of the things I tell them, because I've worked with cops before, here's the thing, you realize every day of their life they're lied to. <laughs> every day of their life they're lied to. So just own it. They pull you over, yes, I was speeding. If you want to say, give an explanation, not an excuse, but even that, they are justified to all the time. So here's the best thing you can do. You get pulled over, I own it, I'm sorry, here's what's going on. Is it possible that you might show a little, some mercy? I, that, I'm cool with that. Like, if you don't want to get it, that's the best thing to do. It's just my advice. Have you ever had those experiences? You do something like that, and you get a piece of paper, and on that piece of paper is one word. You know what it says? Warning. Isn't that an awesome word? It doesn't say ticket, it says warning, and one word changes everything <laughs> with your insurance and the conversation with your wife and all of that, right? <laughs> I've got a good friend of mine, he told me how some years ago now he took his girlfriend at the time out to this park. It was the park they went the first time the two of them ever kissed. He was a really picky guy, he was a really thoughtful guy. He dated very intentionally, and in fact, what he told me is that he had never kissed another girl in his life, and he took them out to the place where they kissed for the first time, and this is what he said to her. You ready for this? He said, I took you to this park to ask you if you would be the only girl I ever kiss. That's good, isn't it? <laughs> and guess what she said? One word changes everything. What did she say? She said yes. And that one word changed everything in their life and the lives that come after it. I want you to think about this principle because it's so important in Paul's testimony here. Because Paul in this chapter, he gives a testimony and he said, as usually happens in testimonies, here's what happened before I knew this guy, Jesus. And he said, verse 11 is the one that strikes me the most. What does he say here in verse 11? He said, I was obsessed with persecuting them. I was obsessed with persecuting them. In fact, I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Don't you just want to ask Paul, like, why are you obsessed with, like, destroying this faith? Like, I get standing up for something, but Paul was obsessed with persecuting and hurting Christians. I remember coming across a website one time, 
The entire website was written by an atheist that was dedicated to destroying and mocking the Christian faith. Now listen to me, if you are not a believer, I get it. I respect the atheist view. I, don't, I disagree with it. I think there are deep reasons, not just, oh, we just kind of jump off a cliff and believe in this. There are deep historical reasons for believing in what we believe today. I respect a thoughtful disagreement, but this website was not like that. It was mocking, it was, it was derogatory, it was belittling, and the entire thing was attacking the Christian faith. And there was one brilliant response on the blog. It was one young lady who was a Christian, and she wrote, I'm just curious, why would you spend all of your time and resources trying to tear something down instead of building something up? Why are you spending all of your time trying to attack something instead of offering some alternative worldview or something like that? And she said something incredible. I wrote it down. I thought it was, I thought it was a, a great insight. She said, is it possible that this Jesus guy may be more intriguing to you than you might admit? I thought that's pretty good. Why, why are you just attacking people? And isn't that what you want to ask Paul? Why are you obsessed with persecuting Christians? Why are you bent on persecuting Christians? And Jesus comes and encounters Paul, and he asks that question Almost. Follow me. One word changes everything. What I expect Jesus to say is, Saul, why are you persecuting them? Why are you persecuting Christians? But that's not what he said. Did you catch what Jesus said? Once you get this, it changes our understanding of the passion and our understanding of the hope of Easter. What did Jesus say? He said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And one word changes everything. Jesus said, I'm looking down at the suffering of my people, and I'm not saying, why are you persecuting them, Saul? I'm saying, why are you persecuting me? What is going on here? I think about this almost as the reverse of something we talked about when we were doing the book of Ephesians. And we talked about the promise that happens when you are baptized into Christ. We're going to have a baptism at the end of the service today. It's going to be beautiful. Because all of what we're talking about right here just for a moment is going to happen in this moment. And what we talked about in the book of Ephesians is Jesus so identifies with his people. When you are in Christ, when you are saved by grace, through faith, alone in Christ, and you are baptized into Christ, he says you are united. Paul, the same Paul says you're united with Christ. And we said, here's a little phrase that will help you. What that means is where he goes, you go. Here's a simple way to think about it. Where Jesus goes, you go. Do you have something broken and dead in your life? Great. We go with Jesus. We're united with him. All that stuff that we hate in our own life dies. Isn't that great? But we don't stay dead because where he goes, we go. Because what happened after he died? He was raised to life. And so whatever is dead in our life can be raised to life again. And we're ascended. We now live in the presence of God even though we're physically here. And there's going to be a day that we come and appear again in glory, Paul says in Colossians 3. Why? Because that's what happened to do to him. Where he goes, we go. But did you know in this passage, one word tells me that the reverse is also true. Do you know what Jesus says because of the resurrection of Christ and his identification with his people? He said, I'm so connected to you that guess what? Where you go, Jesus says, so do I. Isn't that astounding? So if you've ever been on your knees and you're crying out to God because something is hurting in your life and it doesn't resolve for you or somebody else and it may not fix this side of Jesus coming back, but just understand, you're not on your knees alone. He is there with you. The resurrected Christ is there. 
If you've ever cried out because there's something in the world, something broken, that you just long for it to be different, you're not crying out alone. If you've ever been on your knees and you're praying for forgiveness for the thousandth time and like, God, will God actually show up this time? Understand the resurrected Christ is already there. Because where you go, he does too. Why are you persecuting me, Jesus said. I so identify with the people that are my followers that I will be present with them even in their suffering. That is incredibly powerful. Can you picture it? Oh, it's a metaphor, the throne room of heaven. But picture kind of the throne room of heaven before God creates the world and he knows we're going to mess it up. And God the Father says to the Son, Here is my plan for you to redeem the world, the passion of the Christ. You're going to suffer, and you're going to give your life for my people to be redeemed. Will you do it? And Jesus, the Son, says, yes, Father, I'll do it. Understand in that moment when Jesus agreed to do it, he didn't agree to suffer just for six hours on Friday, or even a week, or even 33 years. He agreed to suffer till the end of time for the sake of his people. In other words, Jesus said, I will not be finished with the passion of the Christ until you are finished with yours. Because I'm going to go through every single mile of it with you down to the last six miles of agony and frustration and pain. Jesus said, I'm not done until you are. Got a picture of this some years ago. I told you I tried to run the Oklahoma City Marathon. The reason why that was particularly difficult mentally for me is I'd already tried to run a marathon before. It's called the Marine Corps Marathon. It was this one. It's a beautiful race outside of Washington, D.C. My sister and I trained for it. Runs through all of the monuments and all of that. It's a really powerful experience. Problem is, when I was training for it, I read this book by Galloway, and some of you might use this system. It's fine, it's great. Somebody gives me two ways of doing something, I'm going to pick the harder way, and and it was dumb. Because what his idea was, here's how you beat the wall. You go further in your training than you go in the race. So his training took you to 26.2 miles, and then two weeks later, you run 28 miles so that it's easy when you do the race. So I thought, okay, I'm going to do this. And I was running the 26.2, so I ran an entire marathon, had it all mapped out so that down to the very last quarter mile, I was running the last quarter mile on a track. And I was coming in for the last 100 yards, not making this up, last 100 yards, and my left knee locked up. Two weeks before the race, I thought, oh, my goodness. All right, I just won't run anymore. I'm just going to get it out. We're going to make this work. Got 14 and a half miles into this marathon. I still remember this like it was yesterday. It was 14 and a half miles. I couldn't go anymore. My knee locked up. I just, I had to quit. I just hate, hate not finishing. And I'm walking off, and just at that moment, my wife came rolling up with our three-year-old daughter in the stroller to cheer me on. Oh, I hated that moment. I'm a guy, forgive me, but I'm like, oh, it's horrible. So we decided a few years later, me and these folks from our church, to run the Oklahoma City Marathon. And we trained for it. We trained for it. And I remember the day we were doing our long run. It was, it was I don't know, 12, 13 miles Uh, No, it was 15 miles, and we got uh, 12 miles in, and I felt a very familiar pain in my left knee. I thought, oh, no. I thought, hold on, here's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to stop, and I'm going to bend down, and I'm going to stretch. And I found out, and I don't advocate this. I'm looking at the doctor here. I don't advocate this, but I found out if I stopped and stretched it, I could go another mile or so. I'm like, I'm going to finish this thing. 
And so for the last several weeks of our training, that's the way I had to do it as I stopped and I stretched. And I, we were training with these two or three other guys, and there were several of them that were doing it. And there was one guy that was with me from the very beginning of the training and the commitment. His name is David. And I remember telling him, okay, i got to stop and stretch, so you need to go ahead. Here's the thing you need to understand. If you're going long distance, some of you get this. To go slower than your pace hurts. You understand me? Like one of the things Jim taught us, you find your pace and you can run all day. But if you go at your slower than your pace, it actually hurts your body. So I said, David, you need to go ahead. And every time I'd run and I hit that and I'd get down like this and I'd look up, guess who I saw? My friend David. He waited for me. He waited for me all the way through the training. And so we got to the race and there are four of us that are racing together. They're going to run this and we start out and they said, all right, here's the thing. We've got to run our own pace. So run your own pace. Maybe we'll catch up at water stop some. And we all did that. And we staggered out. We all hit the wall in different times. And I will never forget mile 25. Water stop at mile 25. Side by side. David said something to the rest of us. I will never forget. Three words. He said, we finish together. The last mile and a half, that's exactly what we did. In fact, we came in and the chips on our shoes to the tenth of the second were exactly the same. By the way, you might not be able to see it. You look really close in front of that glass window. That's my bride and my little girl right there as we're going through the line. It was one of the greatest days of my life. Not because we got a medal, not even because we finished the race, because I experienced what friendship and family felt like. But here, you know what's amazing? David could have been done. He's the guy right next to me on the right. He could have been done long time before that. But David said to each one of us, I will not be finished with this race until you are finished with yours. We will finish this together. You know one of the reasons I love Jesus so much? He could have been done today, 2,000 years ago. He could have walked out of that tomb and not had anything. He could have said it's finished in every way. But you know what the resurrected Christ says to you? I will not be finished until you cross the line with me. I'm going to go the last six miles with you. And I won't be done until you and this entire world is in the resurrection picture with me. I don't know about you, but I can love a Lord like that. Father God, that's our praise this Easter morning. Thank you for suffering and entering the fullness of the human experience. You did not stay distant and get disconnected from your world. You gave everything for us so that you might be present with us in every moment of the pain so that we might experience the fullness of your glory. We worship you, God, Father of all. And we thank you so much for giving us our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He is risen, and we worship him today. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.